welcome, Neil. I said you're welcome, Neil, for God's sake. This is hell. The virus is the violence of capitalist imperialism. Chew on that for a little bit. And this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I had a bit of a relapse yesterday, so apologies for not being here to do Monday's show. Instead of doing the show, after being woken up in the middle of the night with a very intense, sweaty fever, I spent a beautiful spring day taking pain relievers while applying cold packs and heating pads to my seized-up lower back. And this really sucks because I'm so freaked out by the possibility of getting the Rona that I do not want to go see my doctor. Not that I could if I wanted to because the last time I checked, he was still not taking any appointments unless they were an emergency. And if I believe it is an emergency, my doctor has told me to go to the ER, which is even more frightening considering we're in a global pandemic. And this probably won't surprise you, but the hospital I go to is not that great. That's what I was doing during our unfortunately extended weekend. How about you, Alex? I knew yesterday it was too good to be true when I was riding my bike over here and... uh the Dos Amigos taco tent that's in the uh, parking lot of the auto zone at uh, Tui and Rockwell was open. It, was, it had been closed down for the entire pandemic. It was open yesterday, and I was so excited. I waved to them and said, welcome back, as I was riding down the street. Then I got here, and I saw your mother. You were sick. <laughs> Dude, I didn't know that they reopened. I really want to get some Dos Amigos tacos. Yeah, I was thinking maybe with your stomach problems, now's not the time for Cabeza taco. But uh, if uh, you buy that, if you buy Tui and Rockwell as a PSA, uh, really good tacos. <laughs> you know what I'm learning during the virus? I think I might have the sweatiest hands in all of Chicago. I'm, I'm the only person who cannot put on these latex gloves without having significant issues, having to fill them up with baby powder, and then when I take them off, it's an explosion of baby powder in my face. I, I, what the hell is wrong with me? Yeah, Chuck's, uh, Chuck's entryway to his office is just covered in baby powder. <laughs> it's, it's really it's gross. OSHA violation. <laughs> on today's show, you may have noticed over the past couple of weeks, liberals everywhere are suddenly aghast at the systemic racial violence that pervades policing across the United States. Phrases like institutional racism are no longer only for the most hellish radio shows at the left end of the dial and anti-capitalist podcasts. Suddenly, liberals seem to be waking up to the reality that, yes, cops have treated black people differently from white people forever, and that treatment is not only unequal and unfair, but it is often violent, even deadly. In the past, when uprisings like the one we are experiencing right now have happened, when they've happened in the past, liberals have been trotted out with some palliative meant to reduce the pain of the problem without ever addressing the actual cause. In particular, as our guest today will argue, black liberals have derailed the struggle for poli- police justice, but this time black radicals who are correct all along about police violence are ready for them. Our guest today will be Africana Studies scholar Yannick Giovanni Marshall, who wrote the Al Jazeera article, Black Liberal, Your Time Is Up. Yes, tell the world that we are fed up, but black liberal, know that we are finished with you, too. 
Yannick is Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Knox College. You can follow Yannick on Twitter at Further Black. Yannick is a contributor to the Ameri- African American Intellectual History Society blog, Black Perspectives. And you can find out more about Yannick at YannickMarshall.net. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is think alkaline foods like fruits and vegetables, soybeans and tofu, as well as some nuts, seeds, and legumes that are re-alkaline promoting foods. There you go. Is it thinking it or just eating them? Uh, just thinking about you know, it, 2012 apparently. article at SF Gate headline, Tips to Cure That Hangover, which we cited last week, writer Melissa Fiorenza admits there is no cure for hangover. However, she quotes Jane Scrivener, author of The Quick Fix Hangover Detox, 99 Ways to Feel 100 Times Better, (laughs) saying alkaline foods will help balance out the acidity and, quote, keep your energy levels constant rather than dipping and diving. Scrivener suggests muesli with berries and yogurt or whole grain toast with peanut butter. Scrivener adds, if you don't wake up until lunchtime, stir fry vegetables with whole grain pasta. Yuck. Non-alkaline producing foods, uh, foods that include... Foods that instead produce acidity include dairy, eggs, meats, most grains, and processed foods like canned packaged snacks and convenient foods, so they are to be avoided while hungover, so that makes this week's hangover cure. Thinking, I guess, just thinking, alkaline foods. So Scrivener says that uh, you should. she suggests muesli with berries and yogurt, but then within the non-alkaline producing foods that you're supposed to avoid is most grains. I, I don't know. So maybe you're just supposed to think about alkaline yeah. foods, not actually take them. Sorry, Scrivener, I'd prefer not to. I know, exactly. Very good. Very Thanks, good. I had Thank thought you. about that earlier Thank before you. the show started. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, following our guest, Alex will be back to tell us this week's question from hell for you, our listening audience. The person who has our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a this is hell medical face mask so you can protect yourself from the violence of a virus or the violence of the state, although they probably do better against COVID-19 than they do against mace or tear gas. You can see and get the This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on the word support, which takes you to our humble store. You are listening to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, which is why this is not the media. This is hell. Trying our hardest to be financially conflict-of-interest-free since 1996. Sure, that means we're broke, but hey, no conflicts of interest, so we got that going for us. Don't get me wrong. It's not like we do not have any biases whatsoever, and I'm not using the royal we here, but Alex, myself, and everyone on our show contributes to the biases I display on the show every day. Or at least when I'm here and not at home, buckled over in pain from a chronic condition causing inflamed bulges in my intestine. (sighs) Sure, I have my own biases, but to suggest that my biases are not affected by others, by everyone who I speak with, whose work I read, who I listen to or see, whether in reality or virtually, I certainly hope they all have an impact on how I view the world, because if they don't, then the time I spent with them was completely wasted, and I have old episodes of Toast of London to watch. Instead of telling you what those biases are, let me share with you some news stories 
from over the weekend that reveal how truly and deeply biased I am, so you can take those admitted to biases into account. Too often in the media, we are we as the consumer are only allowed to speculate on the biases of those who control the debate within the media. We can only speculate that if you are working in a corporate-owned or even national public news outlet, you're probably not anti-capitalist because, well, if you work for a huge corporation or for a national public radio, spreading a critique of capitalism is probably not at the top of that corporation's or organization's agenda. We can also speculate that if they did not come from the 1% or even the 10 or 20%, that's where they are now that they have attained such positions in the media. Therefore, putting their colossal homes and fat bank accounts at risk is likely not a top concern of the editors, reporters, writers, or anchors, especially if their studios are in metropolitan areas that have a very high cost of living. In other words, if you are watching a TV news show whose studios are in New York City or Los Angeles, it's very likely the people who are on the screen are millionaires and therefore... Whether they believe it or not, whether they recognize it or not, they are representing the needs and desires of themselves, of millionaires. But there's no need to speculate about my biases. I'm more than happy to fess up to them, and maybe in the process I can ditch some of them or even improve them. For instance, the Wall Street Journal, NBC News poll showing 80% in the U.S. feel the country is out of control is being reported like it's a... bad thing. How is that a bad thing when the people and powers in control suck and kill people? I have a bias against being controlled, and especially the way the police try to control us through force. If a state needs to control its citizenry, it's probably, it's, well, very possible. The citizenry is not that crazy about their state. And in a local neighborhood group on social media, moderators felt compelled to say that a local Black Lives Matter rally announcement was not political. Due to what I've learned from our guests here on This Is Hell, I posted, This is an act of the polis, the people, so by definition, yes, it's political, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that in a democracy. Political has been made a profanity by those who want to take the power of the people away from them. Those who want us to be powerless and intimidated by brute force. A better word than political would be partisan, as that is what most people mean when they say political. Unfortunately, using political instead disempowers the very people that one wishes to support. Yes, I'm biased against those who work hard to convince the people that they do not have any power, that the horrible way things are is the way they have always been, and there is no alternative. I'm very biased against those who purposely try to disempower people by making political into a vulgarity when they clearly mean partisan. Blame those crappy political parties for why everything's so screwed up. Not the people. There was another story. This one came out over the weekend about protests against police violence two Sundays ago in Klamath Falls, Oregon. A town of about 20,000 people. Around 200 protesters showed up, and despite Klamath Falls being in a county that's 90% white, a diverse crowd of white, black, Latinx, LGBTQ, and members of the Klamath indigenous people and the Karuk participated. You may remember the region's Klamath Basin from our interview in January with sociologist Carrie Marie Norgard about her book Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. Her book is on the relationship between the Carrick indigenous people and the land through indigenous ecological management, where settlers and colonialism and imperialism saw untamed wilderness ready to be commodified and controlled for agricultural products based on capitalist reproduction, The people who were already here saw vast farms already supplied by nature that simply needed to be tended to, and all the food you will ever want will be provided for you. 
and that white settler colonial imperialist privilege and superiority was in Klamath Falls waiting to greet the protesters as they arrived. According to an NBC News report, just across the steep street from the protesters, hundreds of their mostly white neighbors were there for decidedly different reasons. They leaned in front of local businesses wearing military fatigues and bulletproof vests, vests with blue bands tied around their arms. Most everyone seemed to be carrying something, flags, baseball bats, hammers, axes, but mostly they carried guns. They said they came with shotguns, rifles, and pistols to protect their downtown businesses from outsiders. They had heard that Antifa, paid by a billionaire philanthropist George Soros, was being bussed in from neighboring cities, hell-bent on raising their idyllic town. The rumors, of course, were unfounded, but that hasn't stopped people in towns from Washington State to Indiana seeing armed guards armed groups patrolling streets after receiving warnings that an Antifa invasion, often spurred by social media or passed along from friends, was going to take place. Again, to repeat, completely unfounded rumors. I remember talking to Arundhati Roy and Fatima Bhutto years and years ago about how conspiracy theories and rumors were a significant part of Pakistani politics, leading to chaotic leadership, distracted by lies that are, for whatever reason, compelling to the media and enough voters to have a tremendous impact on Pakistani politics. And we all knew that kind of conspiracy theory political culture was going to come here, and now we have it. And with our liberal gun laws, the conspiracy theorists whose worldview is based on a series of lies meant to manipulate them into fear and hatred of the other du jour are all fired up with that fear. For those of you in rural America who cherished the greatest generation and their victory over Hitler in Japan, there was a heavily armed Antifa army with bombers and tanks and amphibious landings, and it was called the Greatest Generation in what is known as World War II. Yes, the enemy of the Greatest Generation is now trying to take over the United States of America, and it's not German, it's people from and in the United States that want the nation to be Nazis. Here, my bias is clear. First, living in fear is a very dangerous thing, and people who live in this kind of rural fear, where they have imported their suburban white flight fear to the sticks, while also bringing their chemically enhanced suburban lawns, replacing centuries of old-growth trees, to have some kind of colonial order in their universe. No wild in their wilderness. It's all sculpted to please the gods of mammon, while offending any god of nature. Yeah, mammon. That's right. I read that Weasel Ginsburg's poetry once. But rural, nay, suburban fear is based on the same unfounded rumors that spread fear and lead to counter-protesters who are armed to the teeth while appearing to be racist and in support of police killing black people, whether that's their intent or not. Every time I visit family and friends who live in far-off places without neighbors for hundreds of feet, if not hundreds of yards, and sometimes as many as miles to the next property line, they make certain everyone knows they are pro-gun, they believe in concealed carry, even telling pre-teens to make certain to get a concealed carry license, and then watching that sweet kid turn to his mom and ask if he can get one when he turns 18. Gun lovers can be as obnoxious as any righteous vegan, but at least vegans aren't obsessed with killing, just eating. And every one of the many people who have told me about protecting themselves and their families from the marauding hordes of communists of color coming from the big city... They all assume I have a gun because I live in Chicago, and as Trump and Fox News keep telling them, Chicago is a murder machine with homicides happening everywhere at all times, so you better be locked and loaded. Meanwhile, the people I do know in the city that have guns, they brag about it like they're 
They don't brag about it like their rural counterparts or even want you to know about their guns because once you do know who has guns, if you have guns, you can go get their guns and make them yours, and it's not that far to their place. I know someone whose building they have been living in for years went to a no-gun building. They put a sticker in the front window saying no guns were allowed. Sure, he was pissed, but unlike his rural cohort, he didn't don his camouflage. And by the way, all of you showing up at rallies in camouflage, you do know we can see you, right? He didn't get dressed up to play soldier and get his MAGA hat and go to the building super and tell him to take down the sign because of his constitutional rights in the city. The last thing you need is your neighbors who live mere feet away. You can't help but see every day. The last thing you need them to think is you're a dick, and not just any dick, but a dick with a gun. The rural gun types I've spoken with are shocked I don't own a gun. They like quaking in fear out in the sticks. How can I possibly not fear for the safety of my family that it's irresponsible for me to not own a gun? Want to talk about irresponsible? I'm so irresponsible about the safety of my home that I have on dozens of occasions. Over the past 30-plus years, I've lived in Chicago, left the back door to wherever I was living completely unlocked, if not wide open, all night long. And a few times, I've left my home vacant and unlocked all day long. Sure, I've been broken into while living in Chicago a total of once, and all they took was a boombox with a no-masturbating sticker on the side. My home was broken into more times in suburban East Detroit, three in total, than it has been here in Chicago. Yes, living the city puts you on a certain level of awareness about your surroundings, but despite living in a city that records hundreds of homicides every year, and despite coronavirus now has more homicides this year than last, and oddly more traffic deaths in Chicago, too. <laughs> the whole thing's weird. I'm not in fear at all times of being looted and pillaged, as those who live in suburbs and rural areas seem to be. I have a bias against fear, because hate is the weapon weaponization of fear. I don't watch horror movies. I don't get the allure of being afraid. I have obsessive-compulsive tendencies, which may reflect another bias, so I understand how you can become fixated on fear, even making it your hobby and security your obsession. Here, at least in the city that you fear so much, I am more aware than filled with fear, a fear that can distract from an awareness of what's really taking place around me, even leading to an unnecessary and an unprovoked violent response, because hate leads to fear, and the weakness of fear leads to the cowardice of violence." This fear-based violence is often directed at the most vulnerable in society to further victimize and be compliant with the project of imperialism. During turning the anti-Antifa protests in Klamath fall, fall, Falls into pawns for the elite, the 1%, defending a system that benefits those elites through the subjugation of others, a system whose entire historic financial success would never have occurred if it were not for slavery. This is not justified violence against an oppressor who understands no language but the language of violence and will not negotiate until threatened with violence. My biases on violence come up in a different story, an op-ed in Sunday's New York Times by Genia Belafonte. Genia writes, At some point, history may show us that after years of aggression, after so much brutality that suggested so little fear of re repercussion, it took the looting of a Chanel store and the reversion of Soho to a wasteland to disable a law that has made real police accountability so difficult in New York City. It required a political class moved by fear of disorder and desecration rather than compelled by the logic of justice which had been apparent for so long. Yes, targeted aggression against those who have 
up until now been either physically or mentally impervious to police violence who are in denial about systemic racism within police departments leading to lynching after lynching of black Americans and they are lynchings as they by definition are killings without trials by mobs and the police have proven over the past two weeks and four centuries they're disorderly as any mob that targeted aggression works. But the difference between that kind of necessary strategic aggression of targeting the oppressors who have kept us all down for so long and aiming your hate and violence at those your oppressors oppress just like you, that doesn't do you any good. So yeah, I'm biased against people who choose to live in fear because they choose to hate and how somebody's, now somebody's going to get hurt on some dumb, unfounded rumor steeped in anti-Semitism. I'm also biased that targeted aggression works and is often the only thing that works and that control of your citizenry is not the way that you should be approaching your citizenry, especially when that is a control by force. I am biased against fear, against hate, against violence, directed at other human beings. I believe in courage, love, peace, and targeting aggression against the frivolous objects the 1% covet, and when without makes them feel threatened and suddenly concedes a few crumbs of their privilege. Tomorrow, I'm going to return to that article by Genia Belafonte on the power of taking down a Chanel story because it led to an email exchange on police power between myself and longtime contributor here on This Is Hell, Flint Taylor, who was on the team of attorneys who held the Chicago Police Department responsible and accountable for the assassination of Fred Hampton, and also helped take down police officer John Burge, who was held responsible for torturing detainees. Maybe it will reveal more of my biases, but I got to tell you something. Revealing my biases is not the easiest thing to do. Biases are difficult to confront, and admitting to them can be very personal and humiliating. So for me, revealing my biases, this is hell. Coming up, liberals, when it comes to your equivocating over your concealment of the truth, so you don't have to commit yourself to the cause of ending police violence, your time is up. We'll also have Rotten History announce this week's question from hell, tell you what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell whenever an uprising against police violence directed at people of color, especially black Americans, whenever this kind of uprising happens, the kind that's happening right now, the mainstream establishment, corporate media news outlets trot out the same black liberals one after another who derail the fight against racialized police violence. Here to explain how this happens and why this time it hopefully Will not Africana Studies scholar Yannick Giovanni Marshall wrote the Al Jazeera article, Black Liberal, your time is up. Yes, tell the world that we are fed up, but Black Liberal, know that we are finished with you too. Yannick is assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College, and you can follow him on Twitter at Further Black, and you can find out more about Yannick at YannickMarshall.net. Welcome to This Is Hell, Yannick. What's good? Thank you so much for being on our show. This article is absolutely fantastic. And I know that you are pointing towards black liberals, but I think that this is a great critique of liberalism in general. Liberals were just as offended by the police violence toward black Americans in the South in the 1960s as they are today. And the outcome was the Civil Rights Act, then followed by the new Jim Crow. What hope do you have for a sustained recognition of not the mere rights, but the humanity of black people? Um, none. <laughs> um, I don't believe that um, a situation or a society that actually um, holds up 
the possibility of uh, redeemed settler colonialism, a redeemed America, can ever, and a redeemed America, a redeemed settler colonialism that is white supremacist, specifically white supremacist against um, indigenous people and against um, black people. That is basically their history. For anybody of anybody that believes that that can be redeemed, um, most likely will not be able to see any type of value or any type of humanity in the target of that state. Um, if you believe that white supremacy um, or that its mask in a country is okay, I don't think that you can identify it with the humanity that that country was set up to destroy, to injure, to incarcerate, and to kill. So to you then, what explains so much of the optimism that has been broadcast either, you know, on radio, on podcasts, on television shows, on news shows, that this may be a tipping point, that we may see the dismantling of the Minneapolis Police Department and other police departments, and that there will be a new form of community policing? What explains to you that kind of optimism when you don't think that this can be something that we will have as a sustained solution in the future? Well, if the object of my hope was the type of community policing, then um, yeah, I might actually see that as, as some possibility. But community policing seems to be a friendlier policing to me. Um, the ordering, the, the restrictions on people's liberty, on people's ways of being, um, the criminalization, if that is, if that is helped along by um, a smiling police officer, um, then that's just not, not good enough. I mean, if I do have hope, it would be um, not that there is this type of groundswell um, love that is happening and, and people are starting to rethink their relationships to race. It's that the contradictions are getting uh, more clear by and being forced um, by the people that are on the ground. Um, it's not so much that people are starting to chant and to come together and sing kumbaya and say, yes, the masses are, are right, policing has to change. Um, it's that uh, black radicals are starting to um, appear. Um, radicalism is going to start becoming a normalized or at least a presence. That is the ability to shake the system, not um, liberals finally waking up. It is something fundamental about a liberal's position to the state that there is no waking up that is possible. Liberalism is, however nice and polished it is, is a pro-stellar colonial position. Something I heard yesterday, and I just was thinking about it during your response, is that there's been people are trying to make this link between what the murder of George Floyd and police violence and the outbreak of the global pandemic of coronavirus, of COVID-19, that these two events, that, that COVID-19 kind of sparked the protests against the murder of George Floyd in that COVID-19 was already showing the fissures that we have within our system of capitalism here in this country. And now this showed a gaping chasm when we look at the murder of George Floyd. Do you see any connection between the reaction to the coronavirus pandemic and the reaction to George Floyd? Yes, but not so much that um, people are becoming more aware that um, there are fissures in the system. Um, I don't know how much I even believe that people aren't aware. Um, 
like I think it's just a daily th black stand-up comedians, black TV shows, black people speaking in general. Um, <laughs> even the idea of what black culture is always marks the uh, policing and repression of the state. So and the, the lack and um, the exploitation of, of blackness in general. So I don't know how much I can um, believe that, okay, there is an awakening that is happening. It's just there has been a disinterest. But um, I do think that, yeah, so COVID-19 actually just created a type of social upheaval that was necessary to kind of just loosen the screws in different ways. Um, the feeling of being uh, confined to your house, the feeling of not knowing what is happening, the feeling that there is some type of, like very often the state actually works by producing a, norma a normality through ideology that is just like, okay, everything is okay, this is society, this is the world, this is life. And this is the first time for me in my life and for pretty much everybody else um, to just see that that whole uh, facade of normalcy has been stripped away. The state can do a number of things, can shut down the economy, can stop people from flying, can have what some people are calling martial law, all these things puts people into a different frame of mind and it shows a weakness in the ability of the state to continue to perform that normalcy. So um, that strange shift is um, more likely to be the reason that people started to um, just think, well, if anything is, is, is possible, any type of change is possible, any type of almost revolutionary moment is just the time that we're living in, um, that any, <laughs> why not do something um, outside? Why not escape the confinement that were, that, that were forced upon us? Um, which I agree with, by the way. <laughs> but why not, um, why not escape uh, the world that we're living in? And that's what COVID-19 did. Not so much people are thinking, hey, wait, black people are dying more because of uh, a pandemic. I mean, that's not a surprise to a lot of people, I don't think. That's amazing analysis and uh, uh, very uh, kind of a little bit depressing. You write that <laughs> even now as black liberals are preparing your watered down Black Lives Matter syllabi and your hope and the black spring in the time of Corona book manuscripts, which are by now ready for press, filled as they are with the same dimly lit, unimaginative pablum about improving race relations, feel-good anti-racism, and ways to come forward. We see you. We know why you have come. What is missed when the focus is on improving race relations, feel-good anti-racism, and ways to move forward? What do the protests demand, at least in your opinion, beyond reforms and even beyond anti-racism? So I don't believe that we can have improved race relations in a situation, at least, where um, there is white supremacy and there are people that are under it. There's no improved race relations in that system. In that system. There's no improved um, race relations in any type of uh, connection um, or any type of moment of saying, okay, we're going to be anti-racist now, we're going to say we're going to say the N-word less and we're going to not appropriate cultures. Like That is not improved race relations. And I don't know if improved race relations has ever been an interest that should concern the people that are oppressed. Um, I don't, I wouldn't want to imagine that the Mau Mau struggle, the Kenya Land and Freedom Army struggle was about improving race relations. It was about anti-colonialism to stop settler power, to stop settler supremacy and to get it out. And then um, once you have that removal of the colonial system, once you have the removal of colonial cultures and life, then we can start to have picnics and have fun and then talk and then talk about race relations. But there is no 
improved race relations in a colony. There's no improved race relations in white supremacy. And any time that there is gestures towards that, or even the thinking of its possibility, is all is all it's doing is to sanitize or to talk about a reformed a possibility of a reformed white supremacy, a, prom, a possibility of a reformed colonialism. That in itself, um, one presumes that the relationships between uh, the oppressed and the oppressor will always remain the same. That's not necessarily true, and that's not anything to hope for. I would rather have bad relation, relations that can end up in anti-colonialism and to have good uh, race relations in the colony. That's fantastic. You write of black liberals at protests against the murder of George Floyd by police. You are here to translate an uprising. You are here to show your black skin so that you can claim the mantle of authority on anti-blackness that white liberals have bestowed upon you. You are here to sit at their pundit tables before their cameras, your face beaming across the world as it provides the safest possible interpretation of a revolution in order to police its possibilities and pave over the threat of abolition with as mild and effect, ineffective a reform as possible. How do who you call black liberals benefit from limiting the possibilities of the uprising against police violence? Is this about a class divide within black politics? It's a class divide within black politics, but it's also just uh, the people that are the most proximate to uh, white supremacy in blackness and will benefit more than people that are, uh, one, the most exploited by it, and two, the most against it. Um, it is important. Like, if you just look at the colonial system, in every, every system, not every, but at least the systems that I know in, in Africa where um, there were uh, uh, anti-colonial uprisings. Um, one of the things that the, the British, especially in, in uh, Kenya, would do is to just establish one, a middle class, and also in some places to just establish chiefs um, in societies that never had chiefs before. To establish a chief and to say that we're going to um, correspond with that chief and that chief is going to represent um, blackness. And that chief will always be closer to a white supremacy than, um, and to the settlers, because obviously they're getting paid by them, than, um, than the people. Um, and so there is always the need to have a certain group of people that are supposed to be the mouthpieces of the entire, uh, the natives, uh, the people that are exploited, and uh, for that person to be paid well. So. Well, one, on one level, yes, it's just that uh, it makes sense uh, for people that are close to white supremacy but would like the most reformed white supremacy that they can and to keep their jobs and get their books sealed up. Um, they would uh, maintain the system and play the exact role of saying, this is too bad, let's make a change, but also let's not make a change, let's go on to the next, the next killing. Um, that is generally what the role is. And I'm not suggesting that these people are necessarily... Um, uh, conspiring to, to do this. It's just that uh, because of, as you say, the class position, they have been uh, disciplined and they have been uh, just birthed in that situation so that the normal ways of thinking, the normal ways of being corresponds to not upsetting the order that benefits them. Um, and if they found a comfy enough space in it, um, there's no reason to, to feel that it needs to be done away with. 
You write that although uprisings are spearheaded by radicals, we are shut out of the public discussion. Neither the black radical nor black radical thought is given airtime. Instead, we are forced to endure being talked about and having the revolution we fought for be diffused and repackaged to be palatable for a white liberal audience. As Cedric Johnson uh, argued on our show last year, black political thought is not monolithic. That said, across the black political spectrum from right to left, how much of an impact has black radical thought had on black politics? How indicative or representative is black radical thought of black politics? Because I want to make sure that people understand the degree to which we you know you use a word like radical and all of a sudden you think of it as something that is a fringe thinking is just a, a thinking that's held by a few so how important is black radical thought to black politics black radical thought is responsible for black people for response is responsible for the for the possibility of black people existing black radical thought is what led to emancipation even though the abolitionists have generally been painted as white or people that were just, um, uh, now I guess they would be called bleeding heart liberals and all that. Um, that's just, just another facet of white supremacy, to take one's um, uh, expressions and drive and histories of freedom and then to give the credit to whiteness. Um, black radicals destroyed plantations, burned plantations, um, escaped, formed maroon colonies, threatened the state, agitated to the point where uh, slavery was untenable. And so other decisions had to, to be made. If, as um, Malcolm, Malcolm X was talking about, um, our system, our government, if all there was were black liberals that would talk about our plantation, our master, um, there would not be any change to the situation. So black radicals create the possibility of freedom for black politics to be debated, to, to, to be discussed. Um, and then, of course, every moment of black history in this specific settler colony, um, the United States, uh, you would have periodically any move to change be spearheaded by black liberals, uh, by black radicals. But the problem is, of course, uh, part of what black radicalism is, is to question uh, not only white supremacy, but the entire uh, institution that it birthed, which is uh, settler colonial states. Um, and if you do that, if you have a give a microphone to that, if you allow people to speak about that, um, people might start uh, feeling uncomfortable with their dedication to this uh, settler colonial project. So you have to move them away, and which is why, I, even though I've been teaching, I've been teaching Black Lives Matter for like four years, um, and all all my classes, I've always been surprised at how many people were down with <laughs> burning it all down, for lack of a better word, right? Um, they're just they're just around, but they're not represented because they're not allowed to be represented. The only people that are be allowed to be, to be represented are the people that are ambiguous on the question of throwing over um, white supremacist colonialism. And these people are the ones that become mouthpieces. And when we do something, when we do something great, um, like a creative questioning of um, killing black people and the sport killing of, of black people, uh, what ends up happening is that they would find their way to be able to translate that, to represent it. And just like Cory Booker said very recently, um, he was speaking about uh, uh, people dying. And he said, uh, black people are saying, America, we love you. Do you see me in the type of supplicant Negro uh, type of posture? Well, a lot of black people, as you said, have different politics. So why is he taking all of the all of the 
possibilities of black politics of the people that were killed by the police and turning it into this Negro. Well, that supplicant Negro is specifically the type of form that is most appropriate for the white liberal to then pat on the head and to say, yes, change is going to come. Let's all work on this together. Not the black liberal that remembers how plantations fell when they burned. I want to ask you a couple of questions about strategy. There was an article at theappeal.org by the human rights lawyer, activist, and columnist at The Guardian, Derricka Purnell, a human rights, rights lawyer, writer, and organizer, headlined, Don't Let Cops Join Our Protest. In it, Derricka writes, Marching officers will refuse significant changes to policing in part because they receive their orders from politicians who empower police to be violent. These politicians, too, will yell Black Lives Matter and Black Churches on Sunday and veto cuts in police budgets on Monday. Several legislators sponsor Blue Lives Matter bills, and President Barack Obama chose to sign federal legislation to protect police officers at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, even though black people were getting run over by cops and bystanders alike, tear gas shot with rubber bullets, and beaten. So, I... What's wrong with praising the good cops? What's wrong with being happy about, say, the cops in Flint changing the protests into a parade that the police escorted the protesters down the street? So what's wrong with praising the good cops? It's the same as what's wrong with praising a clans member for like helping children across the street or baking a cake for their family or being sweets on Sundays. Um, it's not about the individual's um, character. Um, it's about uh, what that character is used to, uh, to benefit, what institutions, what forms of power is, is used, um, that, that, that goodness is used to benefit. Um, and so the good cop, the good clans member, the good imperialist, the good colonizer that smiled and said, don't beat um, the native uh, uh, willy-nilly, limited to 15 uh, strokes. Um, well, that was kind, but that is not sufficient. Um, it is not sufficient to, uh, to praise um, imperialists and praise colonialists because they smile more often or they're kinder. Uh, the problem has been colonialism, the problem has been imperialism, the problem has been totalitarian uh, governance in the ghettos, in the slums, in the prisons, in black life, um, red life. That is the problem. Now, the good cops themselves are necessarily just good cops, just because you see them kind of kneel at a protest. Um, as we all know, there is hearts and minds campaigns in pretty much every um, imperialist war. Uh, what you do is you take pictures of giving candy to Iraqi children or playing soccer or doing a whole bunch of things um, to show that imperialism has a velvet glove while you hit them with the iron inside. That is what a hearts and minds campaign is. So when we think about what a good cop is doing or what a kneeling cop is um, or what a good apple is, we have to think about it in terms of uh, the part of the machinery of, um, of attack, which is um, the, deploy the deployment of the hearts and minds campaign. Remember, if there are good cops, well, the entire defense of the, pol of the police is that they are, the good cops are supposed to be able to catch bad people. Well, if there are bad apples, bad police and the cops, and they have the de detective agencies, uh, they have the investigative power, they have the powers of arrest, the entire purpose of what is said to be the police is supposed to be catching bad guys. So how can they fail at this specific thing, which is catching the bad apples, which are right in front of their nose? It's kind of um, unlikely. 
the police have been acting as a an occupying military force in black communities since the beginning of the United States. Now we have a more militarized police force than we have ever had before. What impact do you think that militarization of the police force has had on the awakening by people who may not live in the black community that the police force is an occupying military force and acts like an occupying military force? I, I can't imagine any community, um, whether they have activists or whether they are just people on the ground, that um, is now finding out that the police is a military force um, or a military occupation. Like, basically, there's a whole bunch of songs about get the police off the, bu- off the block or um, questioning uh, police presence, um, <laughs> Tupac talking about traps and stuff like that before what is called the military... Um, uh, the militarization of the police. Um, this has always been a presence in a number of different black communities. Um, and so I don't know how adding to the weaponry is a, is a decisive revelatory moment. Um, I will say, though, that uh, the idea of the militarization of the police um, seems to operate in the same way that the idea of police brutality operates, which is that both the militarization and the word brutality works to sanitize the, the the police itself. So um, the militarized police are bad, but then the police are good. Police brutality is is bad, but then the police are good. Well, the police themselves always operate in um, uh, in a, a brutal fashion. The police themselves always operate as a domestic occupying military force. Doesn't matter if they change their uniforms or to look different. Um, what happens is that we have normalized uh, military occupation and through patriotism, through nationalism, have thought about the military occupation in our own spaces as police. And therefore, we've allowed ourselves to believe that there is something different that is happening between regular military occupations outside of the fictionary border and what is happening on a day-to-day basis, even in the widest of areas. When we were talking with William C. Anderson and Henry Giroux last week, uh, one thing that kept coming up was willful ignorance. So if there are people who do not believe that there's, there is systemic racial violence within police forces, within law enforcement across the United States, can you simply not overcome that willful ignorance? Is there any way that you can overcome the denialism not just of climate change or a pandemic, but the denialism of police violence targeting people of color, especially black people? No, there is no way. Um, There are still people, I think uh, Bill O'Reilly just a few years ago was talking about how uh, slavery was sometimes good, or there were good people that were living in in slavery. Um, There are people that are still nostalgic about apartheid that are living in South Africa. Um, Same with Zimbabwe. this idea that the world can be better or things can change by convincing uh, the former oppressors or the oppressors to, to kind of just clean up their act and say, well, you know what, this is bad, is just is, is problematic for a number of reasons, but also just strategically wrong. You don't convince people um, that have been living their entire lives in negrophobia um, to to just say, you know what, hey, this is wrong. That what it, what it does is it actually gives benefit of the doubt that the people that are doing these things 
are telling you the truth when they're saying that they don't believe that uh, systemic racism is real. They might not be. They might just be lying. They might just be like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to feed them and they'll go away because I like racism and I like it as it is. Um, why give them the benefit of the doubt? Why not just assume that the people that I've seen for about 400 years at the same uh, people end up bleeding, dying in jail, etc. Kind of also recognize the pattern, and their their problem is not that they aren't aware of it, but that they like it. The problem that it's not that they didn't know that lynching was bad, but that they're smiling in the pictures. If we have that type of uh, position, I think we would be less interested in um, hearing their story about how they're ignorant while beating people, and maybe if we kind of equalize um, power relationships, then you'll have a better basis of friendship rather than um, convincing them when while they have their foot on your head. If you cannot convince those who are willfully ignorant, those who are in denialism, does that make the entire project of the black liberal futile in the, their attempt or their rationalization of, hey, we're trying to make this more palatable to the white audience so we can at least get some incremental changes. Is that kind of project completely futile if you cannot change willful ignorance and denialism? It's not only futile, it is necessary for the permanence of uh, white supremacy. Without the black liberal um, being that buffer zone, you'd find the nakedness of the two sides. Uh, of people that want to uh, kill and hurt uh, black people and people that do not want to be hurt. That buffer zone, that idea, that that group that is um, mythologizing the, the relations uh, would be the, the black liberals. So it's not just futile. Again, we might not even want to give black liberals too much of the benefit of the doubt. And I am being harsh because I don't know uh, too many black liberals and they might all be well-intentioned on it. But as a group themselves, um, if you are saying, yes, change is going to come, America, do you hear me? Uh, let's find out what's wrong in America, as <laughs> that, that fake uh, pronunciation of, of, of Cory Booker was doing. Uh, if, that is your, if that is your work, um, then what you're doing is you are taming, you are um, destroying all possibility of resistance, or at least fringing the edges of resistance, and to take would-be freedom fighters, would-be people that wanted to do something better, and to bring them into this hope, um, to bring them outside of the maroons, outside of the people that ran away from the plantation, outside of the people that fight the plantation masters, into the house, hoping and, and praying that something is going to be done. That is not just futile. That is sabotage. Do black liberals recognize that they are interceding on behalf of the state and white power, or do they not even recognize it? I don't know. Um, and it's just like uh, you were asking me before about, like, uh, maybe I imagine the question about whiteness and their, um, their not knowing what is going on. Um, I don't know if they don't know or not. Um, but it seems to me that... Uh, you can't always, like, for example, the people that are on TV um, saying that the next thing that Donald Trump is doing is a shock. The thing after that is a shock. You can't always be shocked. You can't always be mistaken and for it to not realize if you're just a regular thinking person to see a pattern, the fact that you're all, your, anal your analysis is always wrong. Um, that is impossible. Um, it's impossible for so many people to, to, to feel that. Um, and so, uh, yes, it is 
possible that they just don't know. But I do give them more credit than that. I think that most likely what they're doing is they're saying uh, they do not want a too dramatic a shift, especially one that can knock their tea off, off their table. Um, so instead, uh, they try their best to be able to see that they're safe enough here and let's try to make it better so that I don't lose my place. And at the same time, the black people that are getting thrown against my TV screens dead um, does not upset me as much. That seems to be much more uh, likely to be the case rather than they're just not noticing a pattern that, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Because at what point, what hour in uh, settler colonial um, white supremacy was there um, any hope? At what point? Um, because I haven't seen it. And so... You can't be wrong all the time. It's just, it's, I, can't, I can't buy that argument. You write, black liberal, your time is up. You have held the mic for too long. Give the mic to any random protester on the street. Any one of them will have something more insightful and analytically sound to say than you do. When you dress up in clothes with our slogans and go on TV, all you do is cry. What are you crying about? I cannot remember the last time I've smiled so much. What does it say to you about not just black liberals, but liberals in general, when they cry so much and don't see the potential for joy, especially in this moment. Why is it so important to them? Why is it so important for liberals to be seen crying? It's one at part, I think they actually are sad. They are mourning a loss, whether it is absolutely courage to them or not, of the certainty of their power. Um, Maybe um, most like everything will, will get back to normal and then uh, nothing will change or nothing substantial will change. Um, but just the idea that it's possible to lose that um, power is um, is scary. I, I will say, though, that, uh, yes, it is very likely that um, there's a lot of performance into it as well. Um, and so to be seen to be crying is to be able to say that you're sad. And sad is exactly that emotion that uh, corresponds to acknowledging um, a problem, acknowledging an atrocity, and then um, at the same time uh, being sure that uh, nothing will be done about it. Anger doesn't do that. You don't get um, angry with somebody and then just say, well, I'll just continuously take the beating. Or you don't see a dog getting hurt on the side of the road and then just say, um, that's sad. You very often get angry at the person that is hurting the dog. So um, sadness itself is a depoliticizing, or at least it's political to the point of ma maintaining the status quo, is an emotion that um, works in the favor of maintaining uh, colonialism rather than um, uh, anger or joy at um, its, its dissipating. Yeah, Nick, I think I got through about one-third of the questions I was going to ask you. I could talk to you about this article for another 45 minutes because this really is fascinating. It's, it's fantastic writing, and you can count on me annoying you in the future by having Alex get you back on the show as many times as possible because it really is fantastic work. We've been speaking with Africana Studies scholar Yannick Giovanni Marshall, who wrote the Al Jazeera article, Black Liberal, Your Time is Up. Yannick is a contributor to the African American Intellectual History Society blog, which you should check out. It really is fantastic. We've been getting a lot of great guests from that blog recently. 
It's called Black Perspectives, and you can find it at the website aahs.org slash blog. You can follow the AAHS on Twitter at AAHS, and you can follow Black Perspectives at BLK Perspectives. One last question for you, Yannick, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. This is definitely going to fall into that final category of our audience hating your response you write black radicals are here to stay which is fantastic come up off that mic and get out before you get looted and take those barack and michelle posters with you they never belong to us how did barack and michelle obama not belong to who you describe as us um there is no officer of colonialism that can be helpful to the colonized. Um, and so I don't know why. I lost a lot of friends in 2008 um, when I thought we were all together in, in anti-imperialism and all of a sudden it's like, oh no, well this imperialism can work for me. Um, I, I never saw it and I think it's all been revealed that it wasn't the best of all possible worlds. So um, an officer of colonialism, a commander-in-chief of colonialism, a person that is dedicated to the protection of both settler colonialism uh, at home and um, imperialism abroad will never really benefit um, the natives and the colonized um, who, by definition, have suffered under imperialism and colonialism. You know, Yannick, that reminds me of uh, right before the 2008 election. I think the, the primaries were wrapping up. We had a guest on our show. I said, how is uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy any different from the Bush administration's policy? Because Barack Obama said that he would, even if Pakistan didn't allow him to go into their country, he would you know, violate their so sovereignty and chase down terrorists if necessary. And I said, how is that different from the Bush administration's policy? And the person, person who was very supportive of Obama said, because Obama will do it right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, Yannick, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. This is a fantastic conversation, great writing, and I'm now going to annoy you for the rest of your life. So thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Live from Lake Capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. Hey, Alex, what's this week's question from hell? Got an idea yet? Yeah, hold on. Why is this music not playing? One second. All right. There we go. Okay. Oh, I hear angels. Uh, this week's question from hell is, uh, how should Chuck cure his stomach pain? How should Chuck cure his stomach pain? I might rephrase that, but the question is, uh, what does Chuck need to do to get rid of this uh, horrible stomach pain he's dealing with? I got to figure out something, man, because I'm really tired of this. I want to do something holistic. You know, they told me one time, nettle tea, which doesn't sound right. So I told my doctor I was drinking nettle tea, and he said, you have a problem with punctures in your intestine. What are you getting anything that has the word nettle in it in your body for. It might strain that part out, I'm guessing. Yeah, jeez. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On June 8th, A.D. 793, I'm going to say A.C.E. because I'm that kind of guy. 1,227 years ago this Monday, now yesterday, 
Scandinavian Vikings carried out one of their earliest known raids in England, the 9th century Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, one of my favorite 9th century Anglo-Saxon periodicals, records that the invasion was preceded by whirlwinds, lightning, and fiery dragons flying through the sky. So clearly the writers of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle loved to trip balls. The Vikings landed on Lindisfarne, an island in the North Sea, about three miles off the coast of Northumberland. Also known as the Holy Island, today it boasts a 16th century castle and is a popular tourist site and nature reserve because why not celebrate the invasion of England by Vikings? But in the 8th century, it was an important Celtic religious center housing valuable relics and ceremonial items like the Jersey of Larry Bird. That's why I pronounced it Celtic instead of pronouncing it Celtic. News of the Viking raid traveled fast across Europe, and the event was viewed as a shocking desecration. Although ancestors of President Trump were quoted as saying it was beautiful. An official in the court of Charlemagne noted in horror that the Vikings looted the church and monastery, destroyed the many religious statues kept there, and committed widespread robbery and slaughter. 12th century historian adds that the Scandinavian warriors murdered the resident monks by trampling some of them in the road around the monastery and dragging others into the sea to drown them in the waves. And considering how there were a lot of starving people back then and they had so many religious statues and gold, I don't know how upset the locals were about it, but man, the Vikings were real dicks. Should be of no surprise to anyone, then, that their descendants would later form the raiding parties of the British Empire. On June 9, 1972, 48 years ago this Tuesday, today, thunderstorms dumped more than 15 inches of rain on the area around Rapid Creek in the Black Hills of South Dakota. The torrential rains not only caused the creek and its tributaries to swell far above normal, but also swept rubble, tree branches, and other debris into the creek so that it formed an enormous junk pile behind the Canyon Lake Dam, and dams do not do well in rotten history. The debris, or debris, as I've heard so many Chicagoans call it, and I love hearing that called debris, blocked the spillways that otherwise would have allowed a release of pressure behind the dam, and it made the water level rise by 11 to 12 feet. At about midnight, the dam failed, releasing a flash flood that roared through Rapid City, as well as the neighboring town of Keystone near Mount Rushmore. The torrent swept trees, boulders, cars, and other heavy objects through the city streets. Almost 250 people were killed, another 3,000 injured. The deluge, or deluge, depending on where you're from, leveled more than 1,300 houses and damaged thousands more. It also destroyed more than 200 businesses and some 5,000 automobiles. Days later, after the waters receded, many people could find no trace of their former homes. Unfortunately, the carving on Mount Rushmore stayed intact as it glares out directly at indigenous lands and people forever watching. God, I hate that monstrosity. Finally, on June 10th, 1692, 328 years ago this Wednesday, tomorrow, a 60-year-old woman named Bridget Bishop became the first person to be executed in the Salem Witch Trials in Colonial, Massachusetts. Executed? I'm going to go with murdered. Of some 200 defendants, a total of 20 people would be executed, 14 women, 5 men, and a 6-year-old. A 6-year-old girl. Hmm. The complaint against Bishop included an accusation that she had not only cast spells, but also corrupted young people by throwing loud parties at which they drank 
and played shuffleboard. Yes, shuffleboard, the game of Satan. During Bishop's trial, a jury of women examined her and found that she had a third nipple. Clearly Satan's work. The third nipple was viewed as the unmistakable, unmistakable sign of a witch and Bishop was hanged. How times have changed. Today, if you have a third nipple, they don't call you a witch and execute you. Instead, they give you a very short-lived reality TV show called The Three Nipple Wives of Orange County, which even the USA Network wouldn't give a second season. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please tell everybody the rest of this week's guests. Uh, tomorrow on Wednesday, uh, Paul Renfro will be on to talk about his new book, Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State. And uh, we're still on let me F5 this. See, they didn't write me back. Uh, still working on Thursday. And uh, Jeffy. Did you see the article about how uh, architecture or the cities are designed to be oppressive? The architecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy's uh, on my list, too. Okay, cool. Just want to make sure he was on your list. That would look like a really great article. I got about halfway through it when I was just like, oh, I'm just going to forward this to Alex. Uh, so I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Yannick for being our guest today. Yannick Giovanni Marshall wrote the Al Jazeera article, Black Liberal. Your time is up. You can find out more about Yannick at yannickmarshall.net. And you can follow him on Twitter at Further Black. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for doing Rotten History. And as always, special thanks to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood for doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes work here at This Is Hell. <sighs> Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is Hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.